Michael Vaughnen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And recently I did a video in light of the Yuletide season for a gift-giving guide. And because of the tendency to get a little bit materialistic around Christmas and that time of year, I thought it would also be useful to do a video about the other side of human nature that's a little more in line with what Thorin told Bilbo at the end of The Hobbit. If more of us favored cheer and food and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. And so in light of that, I wanted to talk about the theme of greed in Tolkien's works, namely The Silmarillion, The Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings. So let's kind of talk about what aspects of the stories relate to greed and how that plays out in each of the plots. Let's go. In The Silmarillion, the key plot line that connects everything is the fact that Melkor, or Morgoth as he's later known, steals the three Silmarils that Feanor created, which are gems of surpassing beauty, and for the rest of the, the book, the elves are trying to recover those. One of them does end up being recovered, and that becomes kind of a central point, but the interesting thing about it is whenever the theft of the jewels is discovered, Feanor and his seven sons swear an oath that is called the Oath of Feanor, and basically what they say is anybody, including the Valar, any other elves, any creature that comes between them and the Silmarils, they will consider an enemy and will be at war with them forever. So that ends up creating a lot of problems. Now, Feanor was, before the theft was actually discovered, was asked to share the jewels with the people of Valinor because just before that, Melkor had destroyed the two trees of Valinor, which were predecessors of the sun and moon, in the hopes that they could revive those trees. And he said no, basically already becoming a little too greedy of his own works. And that greed is kind of partially what propels him and his sons to make the oath. And it starts to find fulfillment almost immediately because they plan to set out for Middle-earth to follow Morgoth. And the first thing they run into is there's an ocean between Valinor and Middle-earth. And so they want to take the boats that others of the elves have, have built so that they can get to Middle-earth. The other elves say, no, these are our boats. We like them. We're going to keep them. And so, unfortunately, what happens is Feanor and the elves with him start to actually kill the other elves, and immediately we see really bad problems resulting from his greed. And it only gets worse from there. Later on in the st story of Baron and Luthien, of course, Baron and Luthien do manage to recover one of the Silmarils, and they eventually bring that back to King Thingol of Doriath. And this becomes important to the later half of the Silmarillion because, again, the Oath of Feanor is active. The children of Feanor, the sons of Feanor, they want to get this Silmaril back. And they can't initially because Thingol and Doriath are protected by what's called the Girdle of Melion. Melion being Thingol's wife, who is a Maya. She is actually not an elf, but a she's on the same level, basically, as Gandalf and Saruman, and Sauron. Same same type of being. So she's protected Doriath, which is a giant forest, with basically a magic that makes it so that anybody that she doesn't want getting in will get hopelessly lost and never find their way in. That only gets messed around with a couple of times. One by Baron, who is kind of led there by fate. Another by 
the wolf, Karkaroth, who has the Silmaril in him, which is just a little too powerful for Malian's magic. But the, but the idea is the Sons of Feanor can't get at Thingol at first. Unfortunately, what ends up happening, the at the end of the story of Turin Turumbar and the Children of Hurin, uh, a piece of treasure is brought back from a dragon horde, which is already a bad sign, right? Which is protected or held by a dwarf who then curses the gold, and then this ends up, a necklace from the horde ends up in Thingol's possession. He has some other dwarves basically improve the necklace and then put the Silmaril in it, and again, the greed operation gets going because Thingol then doesn't want to pay them what he owes them, and the dwarves now want the necklace and the Silmaril because it's kind of how dwarves are. They kind of like gold. So nobody could have seen that coming, right? Anyway, the dwarves kill Thingol because he refuses to pay them what he owes, and Melion, in her sorrow, then just leaves, leaving Doriath completely wide open. Now, the dwarves made off with the necklace, so the sons of Feanor didn't come and try to get it just then, but Baron and Luthien eventually kill the dwarves and recover the Silmaril. They're living kind of off in a far corner where nobody knows they're there. They end up having a son who tries to reestablish the kingdom of Doriath, but again, without the girdle of Melion. Baron and Luthien finally die because they became mortal. Well, she became mortal. Baron was always mortal and they pass the Silmaril on to Dior. Dior then, unfortunately, draws the attention of the sons of Feanor, who realize there's a Silmaril in them there, Woods, and they come and destroy the kingdom of Doriath. And that's the second time that elves intentionally make war on elves, and again, it's all because of this oath. So that's kind of the second major event, but there's one more. So after the destruction of Doriath, the Sons of Feanor don't actually recover the Silmaril because Dior's daughter, Elwing, is uh, helped to escape by some of the other elves, and they flee to the mouths of the Syrian River, which is far to the south, and they also meet up there with the refugees from Gondolin, who, if you don't know most of these stories from the Silmarillion, I apologize for kind of going over this really fast. I'll eventually kind of cover all these in videos, but for now, hopefully you understand a little bit about the backstory. But they meet up with Arendil and the escapees from Gondolin. Arendil and Elwing eventually marry. Arendil is the one who eventually makes it to Valinor and, and begs the Valar to intervene and basically save everybody from Morgoth. While he's trying to do that, though, he leaves the Silmaril with Elwing, because it's technically hers. And again, the sons of Feanor learn of the presence of these people and the fact that there's a Silmaril there, and they come and, for the third and final time, make war of elf upon elf, and yet still don't quite, you know, make their goal, because Elwing actually just casts herself into the ocean, and for reasons not entirely known, turns into a seagull, finds her way to Arendil, and with the help of the Silmaril, he finally makes it to Valinor. But Eventually, the idea here is you always get all these murders associated with trying to recover the Silmaril. And then the, the supreme irony of it is when the Valar finally come and overthrow Morgoth and recover the other Silmarils, the sons of Feanor basically say, we want those back, and the Valar basically tell them, 
you can't have them. You've already done far too much damage. You're going to come back to Volinor. We're going to basically put you on trial, and then we'll see what happens. So they try to steal them in the middle of the night, but they have become so corrupted, they can't even stand it. Because one of the things it points out in the story is the Silmarils actually will burn the hand or flesh of any unclean, impure, evil thing. So the sons of Feanor, the two sons that are left that actually try to steal the Silmarils, they each take one, but neither of them can stand it. One of them eventually throws him, throws his into the ocean, and the other throws himself and his Silmaril into a chasm filled with lava at the bottom. So at the very end, their greed was completely brought to nothing, literally. So you can already see that the, the theme is very much in place, that greed doesn't get you very far in Tolkien's world. Now let's look at The Hobbit. Of course, The Hobbit starts with the backstory being that Smaug the dragon took all the gold from the kingdom of Erebor and is basically just sleeping on it. And that's one interesting thing that gets pointed out in Tolkien's stories, and The Hobbit makes the most of it, is the fact that dragons just absolutely crave gold, but they don't really do anything with it except sleep in it. They are kind of avarice personified. They want all of it but they do nothing with it. They just want it to have it. And this kind of goes back to what I said earlier about the, the dragon horde in the Turin Turumbar story. It kind of all gets started there. He's just sitting on this huge pile of gold. Anyway, in The Hobbit, of course, Smaug being avarice personified, uh, comes in and steals the gold from the dwarves. The dwarves being the kind of people they are, they want their gold back. And at least in this case, they have a legitimate claim to it. So you can't really call what they have going on greed, although they are perhaps slightly more motivated to get their gold in the face of a dragon than other people in Middle-earth might be. So you've got that going on. Uh, anyway, they, they want to bring Bilbo along as the lucky number. And in the back of all of this, the, the one good thing that Gandalf is trying to accomplish that we kind of learn about in the Unfinished Tales is the destruction of Smaug. That's what he's after. You don't really get that in The Hobbit, though. In The Hobbit, all you really know is they want their treasure back, and they're going to go get it. Now, of course, they promise Bilbo a share of the treasure, a 14th share, which a 14th share of the Erebor loot would be a huge fortune because there's tons of it. Now, what ends up happening, and this is where the greed really kicks in, is when they finally do get Smaug to leave the, the mountain, Bilbo finds the Arkenstone, which is the one thing that Thorin, of course, wants, and he's Thorin basically makes it known, that's my 14th share and nobody else can have it because it's, it's mine. And what Bilbo does, because he kind of sees what's going on, that Thorin is too greedy and he's not going to help anybody else, the people of Lake Town who've had their town destroyed and all this other stuff, all that kind of leads up to Bilbo deciding, I'm going to give the Arkenstone to King Thranduil and Bard and let them use that as a bargaining chip. Thorin is so overpowered with greed that he can't bring himself to give anything away to get the Arkenstone. And so he almost kills Bilbo over it. And this is, you know, I mean, the way they handle it in the novel versus the Peter Jackson movies, it's a little different, but in essentials, it's basically the same. So 
again, you get that idea of, I'm willing to commit murder to get the thing that I want. And what ends up happening as a result is you have the Battle of Five Armies, which didn't have to be nearly as disastrous as it was. If Thorin and the other 13 dwarves, or the other 12 dwarves with Thorin, total 13, had basically said, okay, you can have what you need, and here, you know, give us the Arkenstone back. If they'd just done that, and then the goblins came along after, they could have all holed up in Erebor, and it would have been a siege, and they would have been impregnable. Thorn wouldn't have died, probably, and you'd have a much better outcome to the overall war. And yet what ends up happening, Thorin and both of his nephews, Feely and Keeley, die, despite the fact that they were willing to do basically anything to hang on to their treasure. So again, you get that idea, you can't really hang on to things if, if you're entirely motivated by greed. Now, it gets a little more diluted in The Lord of the Rings, but let's look at that anyway. Greed in The Lord of the Rings has kind of two elements. In, in one element, you have the ring itself, which every time it talks about the ring in, in terms of greed, it doesn't ever really say the word, but it does give you the idea that people really lust after it. And it says that it is extremely beautiful, it's well made, it's perfect, there's no flaws in it, anything like that. And you get the idea that there's more to it than just perfectly shaped gold. There's something inherently evil magic about it that, and I mean, it's not just an idea you get, it's kind of explicitly stated, it, it intentionally is made this way by Sauron. I mean, it, it's basically something that you are going to want if it's near you. So you've got that element going on, and of course that leads to all kinds of problems by itself. Boromir eventually tries to take the ring from Frodo, and as a result, the Fellowship is scattered and Boromir dies. I mean, there's a lot of disastrous things that go on there. There's also other people who want the ring and are willing to do anything to get it, Gollum being the chief of these. And of course, Gollum, again, you, you get that problem of he spends the entire novel trying to get the ring back, cannot do it. And then when he finally gets it back, he hurls himself over the edge and he falls into lava. Don't don't pay attention to the movie. He doesn't fight with Frodo. That doesn't work. That, no, that's wrong. That's just all wrong. Read the novel. It's better. And it makes more sense. It carries the theme through much better. So the other aspect of this is the greed for power. Greed for power, of course, is what leads Sauron to make the ring in the first place. He essentially fools Celebrimbor, who is the great elven smith of the age, into making these rings that he can then control with the one ring. And it's all in a bid to, to get power like Morgoth had in the First Age. And of course, he ends up failing in multiple ways. I mean, he has his ups and downs over the course of the Second and Third Ages. But at the end, of course, what you end up getting is in the Third Age, especially once the Fellowship gets going, he of course is seeking the ring, he's always seeking the ring, to regain his power. And one of the interesting things that Gandalf says about him is he's he doesn't understand that anybody could have a, a goal different than his. I'm paraphrasing here. But essentially, the idea is that he wants it so bad, he can't fathom anybody else trying to throw it away. And so for the entire, you know, novel, he's 
Sauron is thinking one of these guys is going to eventually win out over the rest of them, take the ring, and then he's going to be an upstart and think he can get me, and then I'm going to squash him like a bug. Well, he missed it. He didn't quite get what was going on because at the very end, Frodo puts the ring on in Mount Doom and he realizes, I'm an idiot. I'm about to die. <laughs> and that whole thing plays out again if you're always seeking something out of greed you kind of end up biting the dust because of your own wrongdoing you've also got the side character i say side character it's not really a side character of saruman who himself wants the ring so that he can take power and look what happens to him same thing he's looking for the ring trying to get it he thinks he's got it once his Urukai capture Merry and Pippin. He gets messages that this has been done, but he doesn't, you know, he hasn't actually ever get them to Isengard. But in his attempt to take the ring and gain power, he then becomes an enemy of Sauron, stuck in his tower while the Ents are around, making sure he can't leave. And again, novel versus movie there's some differences there that go into some of how that plays out. But again, it's the idea that you never really get what you want if you're only just being greedy. So it's only by being willing to give up a few things and cherish some of the things that matter more that you can really get true happiness. So that's the theme of greed in The Silmarillion, The Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings. And I figured, given the time of year we're approaching Christmas, Yuletide, Kwanzaa, whatever you celebrate, uh, regardless, it is a time to cherish those around you. Good food, good cheer, and good song, as Thorne would say, and make the world a little merrier, at least for a day or two. So I hope you enjoyed the video. If you did, please give it a like and share it around. Please also subscribe to the channel. You can also follow me at JRRTLore on Twitter. And until next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namadier.